Greetings, brethren, from the, some of you brethren, at least in Southern California. I was able to speak in Garden Grove and La Crescenta last Sabbath, and uh, they send their greetings to you. Talking of last week, last Monday evening, some people undertook a fast, recognizing a biblical event. You might wonder why you weren't alerted to this. It was a biblical event that has to do with calamities, calamities of the past and the eternal's punishment. August the 4th and 5th of this year was the 9th of Av, or as the Jews refer to it today, Tisha B'Av. The fast to remember the calamities of the past. As devout Jews gathered in the synagogues on the 4th and 5th of this month, around the world they read a book of the scriptures that is highly pertinent to that particular day. And interestingly, a book we seldom reference. It is a book that I would put to you that has a profound impact and shapes parts of the New Testament that we do reference frequently. Hence, it's appropriate for us to examine this book and learn the lessons of this book. For the devout Jews who fasted on Monday evening and Tuesday. The importance of this day relates to a number of historical events. This was the day on which the Solomonic Temple was destroyed by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. It was on this same day that the Temple of Herod, the temple in which Jesus Christ preached, in which the disciples congregated and taught, which that temple was destroyed by the Roman armies of Titus in 70 CE. It was on this day that Simon Bar Kokhba, a Messianic pretender, was defeated by the Roman armies of Hadrian in 135 CE, with the consequence that the Temple Mount was plowed by the Romans and Jews were banished from the city of Jerusalem. But the importance of a day to the Jewish community doesn't stop there. Because if we roll the calendar forward by almost a millennium, we come to the date of 1095 when Pope Urban II decreed the first crusade on that day. The crusade which ended up with the sacking of Jerusalem and massacre of Jews. A couple of hundred years later, in 1290, King John, one of descendants of William the Conqueror, banished Jews on that day. And two centuries later, 
Jews were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula in 1492 on that day. And so we can create a whole historic scenario associated with that day. But it doesn't end of the distant past. It's happened as well within the lifetimes of many of us here, or most of us here. A number of us here were alive in 1942, when the Germans started the deportation of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to, to Treblinka and extermination on that day. And in the lifetime of even more of us here, we have a situation that arose in 1994 when an Iranian-backed attack took place on this particular day in Buenos Aires in Argentina, killing some 85 Jews who had gathered to keep or to fast on that particular day. In fact, it is so much part of a memory, of a current memory, that the current Pope, Pope Francis, issued an edict about that event on the 18th of July of this year, saying that it has to be resolved, taken care of. Of course, Pope Francis was using the Gregorian calendar, not the Jewish calendar. In 1994, the 9th of Av coincided with the Gregorian date of the 18th of July. So we have all of these horrific events that have taken place, even with our lifetime associated with this day. The 9th of Av is known as the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. It's a day of calamity. Any and every calamity appears to be associated with that day. It's as though the enemies of the Jews appear to choose that day to inflict their harm, presumably thinking that they are doing, or by doing so, they're continuing divine punishment on these people. Such a thing is not my purpose today and not my concern today. Because to focus on what happened to the Jews on this particular day focuses on someone else. My concern today is to focus on us as a people, as the people of God. The fast of the ninth of Ab is mentioned in Scripture. And the reading of the Book of Lamentations on this day undoubtedly is associated with this day from biblical times. If you're wondering whereabouts this day is mentioned, you can find it in Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8 in verses 18 and 19, it records a series of four fasts that are still observed by the devout to this day. Zechariah 8 verses 18 through 19. Then the word of the Eternal of hosts came to me, saying, Thus saith the Eternal of hosts, 
the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. For fasts are mentioned the first time in the Bible. In fact, they are mentioned as fasts, so these are not, as you'll appreciate, associated with Leviticus chapter 23. Just in case you're wondering about the fast of the seventh month being the Day of Atonement, let me assure you it is not the Day of Atonement. It's another event of the seventh month that is being referred to here. But the Eternal says these fasts are going to become feasts of joy. And he said, he concluded that proclamation by saying, therefore, love, truth, and peace. Truth, a quality of the character of God. And peace, peace in the Hebrew, the word shalom, is not what we normally think of peace, where we normally define peace by the absence of conflict. Peace in the Hebrew language meant concern for the well-being of the other. So it was outgoing concern that is being expressed. To be peaceable with your neighbor means to be concerned about them. Not to be cut off and build a great wall between yourselves so that you can never hear him or her, as the case may be. Or they can never afflict you or interrupt you or do whatever they might do to you. Peace is concern about the neighbor. And he said, therefore, love, truth, and peace. Love the things of God and your neighbor. Take care of your neighbor. As I said, these are not divinely ordained fasts. These are fasts that the Jews established because of calamities that happened at those periods of time. So this particular day, the 4th and 5th of August this year, or the 9th of Av, according to the Hebrew calendar, is a day associated, firstly, with the destruction of the two temples, those of Solomon and Herod. Very important structures, because they were the central point of the communities of God's people. They stood there to instruct and direct the people of God. And if you wish to appreciate a little bit of that, I would suggest you read 1 Kings chapter 8 and read the prayer that Solomon gave at the dedication of that first temple profound place that the temple had in the life of the community. Very important place. Of course, it wasn't just a place. It was also the repository of the Word of God. Because the Word of God that we might have before us on our laps today was not subject to printing presses and uh, so forth in those days. The numbers of copies of the words of God were few and far between. And the location of the word of God was where? The temple was the locus 
of the word of God. And the official copies of the scriptures were kept within the temple. And so this was a profound destruction that occurred. A very profound impact upon the communities of people who considered themselves to be the people of God. And so in looking at the book of Lamentations today, I want you to appreciate that it is not just a book for Jewish mourning over calamities. It's not just a book about historical events. It is a book about what happens to the people of God. I also want you to appreciate, brethren, that the book of Lamentations is not just prophecy per se. It is an object lesson for you and me now. It is something for us to learn from. As the Apostle Paul told Timothy in an oft-quoted scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. So we can be skilled and able to accomplish the work that the eternal has us, has for us to do. The book of Lamentations became of such importance that it was included as one of the festival scrolls. The first of the festival scrolls was the book of the Song of Solomon, which was read at Passover. The book of Ruth at Pentecost. Lamentations, central to the festival scroll, was read on the 9th of Ab this past week. Ecclesiastes at the Feast of Tabernacles and the book of Esther at Purim a month before Passover. Very appropriate place for it. And so we have this book which is part of God's word. It's associated with the holy days within God's word although it is not a godly established holy day. It is still something for us to learn from. The book of Lamentations is a lament, hence the title, a lamentation. But it's a lamentation by a person, by an observer, standing by, seeing what was happened or seeing what was going to happen to the people and not seeing it from necessarily the human point of view, but from God's point of view, from the eternal's point of view. helping them realize just how short of God's standard they were falling. To help them appreciate just how much reproof or correction or training in righteousness, as the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, they really needed. And so here is this book, which is a lament, very powerful lament. Uh, We could talk about some of the other aspects, but we'll save that for another time. The book was written at a particular point in time. And we'll find that point in time, the setting of his book, 
given to us in Second Chronicles chapter 35, 34 and 35. Second Chronicles 34, we find that a young man of eight years of age became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Josiah, eight years of age. He was the son of, the grandson of two of the most wicked kings of Judah, Manasseh and Ammon. His grandfather did repent and was returned, but his son never learned the lessons that his father learned and became followed in the wicked ways of his father. But that was not the situation with Josiah. Josiah is recorded in verse 2. What you might say is the eternal's epitaph for Josiah. If we wish the eternal to engrave something on our tombstone, what greater words could be written than that written for Josiah? Where in verse 2 it said, He did what was right in the sight of the eternal, and walked in the ways of his father, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He was not described in terms of his immediate father or grandfather. He was described in terms of his progenitor, David, as being a righteous king. We find if we go a little later in the chapter to verse 27, we find another description of Josiah. Very, very powerful statement about Josiah. Josiah, at this point, had cleansed the temple, having cleansed the land of all the high places, then cleansed the temple and repaired the temple so that it could be used for the function within the community of God's people. And Hilkiah, the high priest, had found the book of the law, had brought it to the king, and the king had sent Hilkiah and the priesthood to uh, Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, sent him to a prophetess to ask what was the eternal's will for his people. Because the king had read the book or had the book read to him, and he realized all the calamities that were coming upon the people because of their sins. And he wondered where God's mercy would be in this. And the eternal inspired Hulda to uh, Hulda to tell Josiah in verse 27. We can pick it up in verse latter part of verse 26. To thus saith the eternal God of Israel, this is not just someone saying and giving their opinion, this is the eternal's statement. Concerning the words which you've heard, because your heart was tender. And you humbled yourself before God when you heard the words uh, against this place and against this inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you, says the Eternal. The Eternal went on and said, you will not see this calamity. You will go to your grave. 
But I want you to focus for a moment on one word that is used in verse 27 to describe the heart of Josiah. Holder is inspired to send a message saying, your heart was tender. A very instructive term because in the Hebrew, the concept of tenderness, such as is used here, is something that is attained by, you might say, immersing something in olive oil. We read about the use of wine and oil in terms of healing. Healing a wound. The wine, of course, can have some useful use as a disinfectant for cleansing the wound. The olive oil keeps the skin soft and supple so that it won't scar, so that it will heal properly. And so oil is used as a means of softening. This man's heart was tender. Hebrew loves to use the imagery of very practical things, and here it uses the imagery of something that has been some flesh that has been soaked in olive oil. Now, that's an interesting point for us to consider because we need to make a comparison between the king's heart on the one hand and that of his people. Because while the king was decreeing all of these things out of a right heart, the people grudgingly went along with it. Jeremiah, of course, was a contemporary of Josiah. Jeremiah chapter 17, we know so well, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But let's back up a bit. Back up to verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 17. Back up to verse 1 of that chapter. This is the way we get to the heart being deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Because the heart is described in this way. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved. It's almost as though Jeremiah is dealing with this thing poetically and said, well, the sin is written with a pen of iron. No, iron's not strong enough. It needs to be engraved with a tip of a diamond, a diamond-tipped drill to engrave the, the sin of the people. Where's he talking about engraving? He's talking about engraving on the tablet of a heart. In other words, of the populace, the heart was not described in terms of something that had been basted in olive oil to become tender and uh, malleable. The heart in this time is described in terms of stone, a tablet, not an iPad. No, probably a granite pad, right? It was something hard and it required literally in terms of the way in which Jeremiah was inspired to write, it required a diamond, the hardest thing to be able to engrave on it. 
And so in talking about Josiah's heart being tender towards God, something that had been softened by the presence of God's Holy Spirit, as opposed to the hardness of a general of the heart of a general populace. Incredible contrast between the two. And so Josiah is promised that he would not face the calamities. They would not happen within his lifetime. Sadly, Josiah got involved in the geopolitics of the area. And we find in the latter part of uh, chapter 35 that he involves himself against Pharaoh Necho of uh, Egypt, who was going to fight with the Babylonians against the Assyrians. And uh, Josiah was killed. Those who understood the word of God, those who understood the significance of a prophecy given through Huldah, understood the calamity that was coming upon the people. And so we find at the end of chapter 35, 2 Chronicles 35, verse 25, Josiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day all the singing men and the singing woman speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments, which we would understand to be the book of Lamentations. So we have this situation given to us. The ninth of Av is, you might say, the most climactic day of the calamities that came upon Judah the day in which Nebuchadnezzar's forces destroyed the temple that had been built by Solomon, that had been cleansed by Josiah. If you read Second Kings 25, you can locate the occasion for the four fasts that Zechariah speaks of. The first of which, the tenth month, is when Nebuchadnezzar's forces laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, the fourth month was when the wall of the city was broken. The fifth month, the ninth of Av, is when the uh, temple was destroyed. And the fast of the seventh month relates to the fifth day of the seventh month when Gedaliah, the man who had been appointed governor by, uh, Jer by Nebuchadnezzar, was assassinated. Uh, with the consequent fleeing of the people to Egypt to get away from the Babylonians and the time when Jeremiah was actually taken into, uh, the, uh, into Egypt as well. So the focus on the book, the focus of this event is really the destruction of the temple with, you might say, the city surrounding it and so forth. So the focus of the book is on the destruction of the temple and, you might say, the temple being the center of the community. We are the temple of God. We understand that. The question we have to ask ourselves is, can we be destroyed? Mr. League was mentioning some of the ways in which Satan seeks to destroy us in the update from Dr. Winnell. He seeks to destroy us. He uses our own ends to destroy us. It's the incredible thing about it. We destroy ourselves. 
because we are deceived by Satan, or if we allow ourselves to be deceived by Satan. I'm not saying you are being deceived by Satan, but if we allow ourselves to, he ends up allowing ourselves to destroy ourselves. The question I'd like to address then in looking at the book of Lamentations then is, what were the problems that brought Jerusalem and the temple to their destruction? What is it that happens that allows that to occur? I'd like to present you with four points today, four problems that the people of Jerusalem, the priesthood, allowed themselves to become involved in that brought about the destruction. Obviously, one could refine these more finely, but let's just look at four principal causes or problems. The first is uncleanness. The second we'll look at is a lack of proper religious instruction. The third one is related to that. It was a lack of respect for what the eternal God of Israel had provided. And fourthly, a focus on physical aspects of life rather than spiritual aspects of life. So let's start with the first one, the aspect of uncleanness. Lamentations chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10 is recorded this way. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Just in case you're wondering where Lamentations is, as you get into the 50th chapter of Jeremiah, slow down a little. Because if you get into Ezekiel, you've passed it. It's sandwiched there is a very thin slice of scripture between those two large prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So we'll read for a little while from the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. Jerusalem has sinned gravely. Therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they've seen her nakedness. Nakedness, you might say, is a function of uncleanness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. Now, bear in mind, Jeremiah is penning these words several decades before this happened. He wrote the lamentations of the death of Josiah, looking forward to what was going to happen. And as I said, this was a book written by an individual onlooker who was not necessarily presenting the human perspective, but was, was presenting the divine perspective of what was going to happen to these people. She has no comforter. O eternal, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. 
The adversary has spread his hand over her pleasant things. She has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter her sanctuary. So various elements of uncleanness are mentioned here. But of course it starts with her vileness, her lack of righteousness. And of course, ultimately speaking, the temple was polluted. The temple itself became unclean because the Babylonians were able to enter into the place that only the high priest should have entered, or only the priesthood should have entered, or only the children of Israel should have entered. Verse 17, Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Eternal has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. And picking it up in verse 22, said, let all their wickedness come before me, you, and do to them as you have done for me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. Jeremiah talked about, or was talked about as being the prophet of tears, obviously a very deeply emotional man. And he saw what was going to happen to the temple that he loved, the city that he admired. And he realized what was happening to it was because of the sins of the people. And he was very emotional about it, very moved about it. Let's turn over to chapter 4 of Lamentations. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, where Jeremiah records for us that the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. And so he's saying the punishment of Jerusalem is greater than that of Sodom. He said her Nazarites, those who had separated themselves for the eternal service, ostensibly, whole purpose of a Nazarite vow, were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. Talking about the cleanliness of them. He said they were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Very clean, elegant, something to behold. He said now their appearance is like soot. Takes you back to Victorian times and chimney sweeps. And children sweeps who had to climb up the chimneys to unclog the soot or the broom, whatever the case may be. Different world. We don't necessarily appreciate it in the same way today. But Jeremiah said their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. A few verses later, 
verse 15. They cried out to them, Go away, unclean. Go away, go away. Do not touch me. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, We don't want you. Stay away from us. Rather interesting because in the Western world, we have almost a fetish about cleanliness and hygiene. We've developed potions to cleanse our body from the crown of our head to the sole of our feet. And what you use on your head, you don't use on your feet. And what you use on your feet, you don't use on your head. And you go into a store today and you see the array of things to, for instance, wash your head with. And there's a shampoo and a conditioner for every possible type of hair condition known to exist. I choose the thinning here, you see. The days will come when I'll have to look for the no-hair formula. But shampoo or soap is not good enough anymore, is it? Because specialize, become very specialized. The days when a piece of soap cut from a long bar of soap would suffice for our cleansing needs is long forgotten. In fact, many of you in this room would never remember such a thing. We go and visit our brethren in Africa, and what are you given? A chunk of soap, which has been cut from a bar of soap about 18 inches in length. Still used, still created today, made today, and still used by a vast majority of people around the world. So this is why I say we in the Western world have this uh, view. But when the Eternal speaks of uncleanness, he's not speaking about how long ago or the distance and time ago that we had a shower or what we used when we did. He's not talking about the deodorant that we may have used or the aftershave or the perfume or whatever it is that we may have used to grace ourselves after our ablutions. He's talking about something more fundamental than that. Now, I would say as an aside that the Ebola outbreak shows how careful people need to be at the physical level. Very important, hygiene. But yet uncleanness such as the Eternal is speaking of here in, in Lamentations, speaks to a greater purpose than just hygiene. Purity speaks to more than just hygiene and health, at least at the physical level. Those are very important. They have a place. I can remember when I first went in the field in the 1970s. I got assigned to a place that doesn't exist anymore. It was called Rhodesia in those days, and today it is called Zimbabwe. And we used to go out and visit people, and we end up talking about clean and unclean foods. Now, the people of Rhodesia loved their unclean food, especially giant prawns and tiger prawns. And so somewhere along the line in the early visits, we would end up discussing unclean foods. And people, well, what's wrong with prawn? 
and our standard response to him, well, where do the best prawns come from? And the immediate response, because most people knew where the best prawns came from, was Baira Harbour. Now, Baira was the second major city in Mozambique, had a harbour, and it was well known for its prawns. And so having given that correct answer, we would simply ask them then, and what part of Baira Harbour do the prawns come from? And oftentimes they had to stop and think. And sometimes we had to coach them a little. The best prawns came from around the sewer outlet in Baira Harbour. And you could see the change. Well, I'm not eating prawns anymore. <laughs> you know, obviously, from a health point of view, it's very, very instructive and helpful and uh, so forth. But the Eternal is talking about something more than just health and hygiene here. An example exists today that is relevant for us that uh, live in this world. For instance, we have kept the Days of Unleavened Bread this year. But in terms of preparation for the Days of Unleavened Bread, most of us were buying provisions for the Days of Unleavened Bread read the labels of the products very carefully because we don't want anything that has a raising agent within it. If it does, we put it back on the shelf. It can take you a long time to find what you're looking for in terms of it. It may be perfectly good to eat, but not during the Days of Unleavened Bread. So we could put it back on the shelf and say, well, we'll buy that if we need it after the Days of Unleavened Bread. You don't want your home to be polluted by leavened products during the Days of Unleavened Bread. Our lives are controlled by what the Eternal says. No leavened products are to be found within your dwellings. And so each and every one of us respond to that. We get the leaven out. If we're buying stuff for it, we make sure very carefully that it doesn't have leaven in it. Our lives are controlled by what the Eternal says we can and cannot eat, whether it is totally in terms of unclean foods or periodically in terms of the days of unleavened bread or you might say absolutely in terms of a day of atonement. You eat nothing. You might say that it is cleanliness is systemic to our way of life. It controls our conduct. You go into the store prior to unleavened bread and almost instinctively you start to look, does this have leavening in it or not? In being systemic, it then becomes symbolic of our way of life. We don't just avoid certain foods for simply a health benefit or value, but as a lesson to learn the way of purity. In other words, to be different. One of the great lessons of purity is that it creates a sense of difference. We don't eat those things. We have to be alert for what everyone else eats, is not necessarily good food for us. 
It may be the best-selling product in the supermarket or the delicatessen. But if it's in contravention of God's laws of purity, then it's a non-starter. It doesn't even feature in terms of our lives. We leave it alone. It's left for somebody else to eat who doesn't understand these things at this point in time. Now, when the apostles come to talk about purity, it's not just the language of hygiene or health benefits or the clean and unclean that is being used. The apostles use the language of purity in the way in which the eternal originally intended to be used as a boundary marker. You show yourself to be a person of God by what you do or do not eat. A boundary marker that makes a separation between us and those who do not obey the eternal. Those who don't consider the eternal's requirements as having any binding effect on their lives. In fact, there was a very interesting uh, article written this week uh, on the current debate of homosexuality. And the question was, and quite appropriate, why can you forbid homosexuality based on the book of Leviticus and eat shrimp at the same time? Because that is hypocritical. And most of the Christian world has no concept of the level of hypocrisy in which they find themselves. They will oppose one thing, but they will please themselves in another thing that God forbids. Purity becomes a boundary marker, a point of separation. It's a statement of our identity in a very particular manner. As a boundary marker, it functions to maintain order and to create order, godly order. To this end, Jesus Christ made his comments to his disciples in Mark chapter 7 when they came asking about the purpose of his altercation with the elders of the Jews in the early part of that chapter. And so if you turn to Mark chapter 7 and verses 18 through 23, Jesus Christ gets to the heart of this. Mark chapter 7, verse 18, he said, the disciples had asked him, well, what, what was the purpose of this? And so Jesus Christ said to them, Are you without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it doesn't enter his heart? It doesn't change a person in terms of their behavior. He said it goes into the stomach and is eliminated. And if it's something you shouldn't be eating, it may make you horribly sick. may make you unwell, but eventually it will be eliminated from the body and life goes on. It doesn't necessarily change the heart. Now, of course, there is a point where it can change the heart if you are doing it in rebellion towards the eternal God. But he said, if you take something which was impure in terms of the Pharisees of that day, so we're not talking about pork and shrimp on this occasion, we're talking about eating, eating with unwashed hands. 
for instance. That's really what the subject of discussion is. It's not about clean and unclean foods. He said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of a heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile or make a person unclean. All of these things. And each and every one of us is susceptible to any one of those things. We can find ourselves being caught with those things and becoming unclean. Second Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul talks to the church about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Verse 18, or 14 rather. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Where he said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Ah, the whole question of cleanliness, of purity, is to do with righteousness. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 19. Therefore love, truth, and peace. Love the character of God and the well-being of your brother. What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Because, you see, we are the temple of the living God. That's what we are, the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, he said, come out and don't touch the unclean thing. Separate yourself from unclean things. Make a distinction about yourself that you belong to God, not to your appetites and the appetites of this world. He said, do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He says a similar thing to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. So the uncleanness of the people, what was coming out of their heart was the problem for Jerusalem and the inhabitants of that city and the priesthood who cared for the temple. Uncleanness, spiritual uncleanness. The second problem of the people, as I mentioned to you, was religious instruction or the lack of proper religious instruction. The priests, the prophets, were not fulfilling their godly responsibility. Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 19. The city said, I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their lives. What was the focus of the priesthood and the prophets? Taking care of the self, thank you. Preserving the self rather than 
teaching people God's way of life. They were more concerned about their own well-being than serving the people of God. Notice chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Speaking of a city, it said, Her gates have sunken to the ground. He's destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The king, Jeconiah, have been taken into captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been taken into captivity. They were of the righteous ones, been taken into captivity. But notice it said in verse 10, the law is no more. The prophets find no vision from the eternal. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their head and gird themselves about with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. The law is no more has no consequence to these people, no value to the people. If we drop to verse 13, it said, How shall I console you? To what will I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? How shall I compare you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Jerusalem? He said, Who can heal you? He said, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity. They have allowed you to continue in your sinning ways. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisaged for you false prophecies and delusions. Speaking to the people of God. Chapter 4 and verse 13. said because of the sins of the prophets so those who are supposed to be leading people in the way of God are sinning themselves the chief sinners the iniquity of the priests the sins of the people and the iniquities of the priests who shed in the midst midst, the blood of the just they wandered blind in the street that defiled themselves with blood We've read some of the verses before. It doesn't take too much, does it, to make a connection between what Jeremiah is saying here in terms of Jerusalem and what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, where he talked about the time coming when people won't want sound doctrine, sound teaching, but they'll heap to themselves people who will itch their ears, Give them what they like. Very sad situation. People who have become unclean because now they no longer see themselves as being separated, as the Apostle Paul said. Third problem, the lack of respect for those whom that God had established as his messengers. Remember, In this environment in which the book of Lamentations was written, you had Jeremiah. Ezekiel was alive. Daniel was alive. How many others were there who were supportive of these men? How many other faithful people were there at that point in time? A small cadre at best. If you want to understand the lack of respect they had for the 
for those that God had established, consider the book of Jeremiah and the way in which Jeremiah was thrown into a dungeon to have his life exterminated. Let's throw this man into a dungeon where we can forget him and he can slowly but surely drown in the filth and the muck that exists in that dungeon. Horrible way to face death. But the eternal brought him out of it. Chapter 4 and verse 16. Said the face of the eternal scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests, nor do, nor show favor to the elders. There was no respect for those offices that the eternal had given. Sadly. The fourth problem is the fact that people looked to the physical rather than the spiritual. They focused upon Jerusalem for what it was. You can read chapter 1 and verse 1 of Lamentations. How lonely sits a city that was full of people. How like a widow she is who is great among the nations. The princes among the provinces has become a slave. She prided herself in her place in the world, her physical preeminence. Verse 7 talks about Jerusalem remembering all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. All of those physical accoutrements that made life good. And now they are no more. They've been stripped from her. Verse 10, the adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things, including having Gentiles enter the temple, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Verse chapter 2 and verse 15, you might like to make a note of, where it talks about the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth is now a thing of hissing. She prided herself on it. Chapter 4 talks about the sons who were as valuable as fine gold and now the worth of a bit of broken pottery. Nothing whatsoever. The great discoveries of the archaeology of the Middle East are pieces of pottery because they're thrown away. No one considered them of any great value. They are left behind. And so often they become the markers and the telltale information for us of what the lives of the people have been like there because they were considered inconsequential by the invaders or the conquerors. No value whatsoever. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verses 1 through 7 talks very much to the attitude of the people thinking they had it made because they had a physical temple and they could carry on doing whatever they liked irrespective of, of, of that. So four problems or four elements that created these problems for the people. The results of those problems Jeremiah records for us as being hunger, poor and impoverished, blind and naked. 
four qualities or four predicaments, better term, that you might relate somewhere else within God's word. These people were hungry, poor, blind, and naked. Revelation chapter 3, isn't it? Verse 17. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, speaking to Laodicea. And we do speak a lot about Laodicea, don't we? We are concerned about not being Laodicea, and rightly so. Rightly so. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Put your focus on the real value of life, the spiritual things. And white garments that you may be clothed, so that your nakedness is covered. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father at his throne. Interesting to consider the book of Laodicea in terms of, or consider the church of Laodicea in terms of a book of Lamentations. The same problems from God's perspective. Chapter 3 of the book of Lamentations is a chapter we've not touched upon. Maybe I could suggest that you read it for yourself sometime this week and consider this book, this particular chapter. The chapter tends to differ from the two chapters either side of it because the speech is largely in the first person rather than second or third person in the other chapters. It becomes very individual rather than collective. Talking about Jerusalem, it becomes very personal rather than Jerusalem out there. In other words, it's something that can't be brushed aside because as we read it, we need to put ourselves in the picture The book or the chapter also speaks of repentance and of comfort. Just as with Laodicea, there is a future based on repentance. A place, above all else, in the temple of our Heavenly Father. So there is a place offered based upon repentance. Let me read to you the verses that most poignantly address some of that in chapter 3, verse 22. Through the eternal's mercies, 
we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The eternal is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. Talking about a repentant attitude. An attitude that wants to clean, clean itself up and become godly and acceptable to God. The same sort of attitude that Laodicea has to develop within itself. The eternal is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The eternal is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Remember the imagery given in Laodicea to Laodicea is, I stand at the door and knock. Bang, bang, bang. Are we listening? Are we alert to those things? He said it is good that one should hope and wait patiently for the salvation of the eternal. An interesting expression given there compared with the lack of comfort that exists in chapter 1. So even in the most dire correction, God provides encouragement. He doesn't want to reject us. It is we who can reject him. He wants us to learn the lesson and as a result change and become like him. Same lesson that Laodicea has to learn. Same lesson that is being conveyed here in Lamentations. The result of learning those lessons means that this fast can be changed to feasting. Ah. So rather than fasting in these days in the world tomorrow, we may be feasting on these days. And people realizing, hey, this day is not a sign of God's punishment upon us, but a matter of God's concern for us and of our Father's seeking of our peace, of our well-being. Just as it says there in the end of verse 19 of Zechariah 8, Therefore seek truth and peace, or seek truth and the well-being of the other. Our Father seeks our well-being. And he will bring us to the point where we can understand those things. When is that going to happen? Matthew chapter 23. The end of that section of woes. Jesus Christ said to his people, to the people of his day, to those who have lived after, verse 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the eternal, or the name of the Lord. Zechariah also talks about the house of Judah and the house of David lamenting and fasting and looking on him whom they pierced. There is a time of repentance coming. What about for us? We were advised in the sermonette today to watch. Matthew's account of the Olivet Prophecy, Matthew chapter 24, talks about Jesus, talks about the servant who is appointed to take care of the house of God. 
part of our responsibility. We have been appointed as servants of the eternal. And so in uh, Matthew chapter 24, we find in uh, the end of a chapter, he said in verse 45, Who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? He said, Blessed is the servant. He goes on and talks about the characteristics of being a good and faithful servant. Verse 48, he turns it around. He said, if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, when he's not watching and at an hour that he's not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint his, him his portion with the hypocrites. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus Christ gives you and me a warning. Are we a good, faithful servant, or can we be described from God's perspective as being an evil servant? To whom addressed? Well, it's addressed to people who consider themselves to be part of the people of God, the servants of God, i.e., me and you, each and every one of us. Each and every one of us have to take heed to make sure that we don't fall into those traps. The Jewish community fasts for an end that they don't understand. You and I understand the end. It's rather interestingly in, in uh, Lamentations chapter 1, it talks about how Jerusalem has forgotten her destiny. You and I have no excuse for forgetting our destiny, the kingdom of God, in which dwells righteousness, the end result of the word of God.